with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and the protests, I totally support all of that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I don't, I, I was black before I was a police officer. Uh, I think um, what was very painful for me personally, uh, I, I, I love my job, I love being a police, I still think it's noble, but what's painful is that when I go into some of these spaces, I'm not looked at as an ally. What's up, everyone? My name is Walt, and I'm the host of Boss Logs. Now, if you're a day one listener, welcome back. And if you're a first-time listener, thank you for joining us today. This is the show where we are redefining professionalism, elevating black voices, and proving that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. Now, we do this by speaking to black leaders, CEOs, and people with really interesting perspectives to learn about their journey through life and their experiences working while black. Now, today we have a special guest with us. Before I introduce them, I want to invite you all to join the Boss Locks Village. It's a private Patreon community where you can directly support myself in this podcast. But more on that later because I have a guest I'm really excited to introduce to you all today. Today, I have the honor and privilege of speaking with BJ Council. BJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's cool. Oh, yeah. This is a real honor, too. It's a real honor because, like, we have a very special guest. This is the very first type of guest. You know, I like to bring on people from different types of careers. And um, for those who don't know, BJ is a retired deputy police chief who gives guidance on surviving interactions with the police through her company, U and 5 um, so of course we have, well, I have a bunch of questions to ask you, but, um, to start it all off, um, we're going to do something a little new actually too. So at Boss Locks, we really feel as though there are more than like 8,000 ways to be black. You know, that concept was brought to us from Jason M. Daniel in the first episode. And one thing I'd like to ask you to start it all off is how, well, knowing that there are 8,000 ways to be Black, how do you identify? I think I identify as like a, I'm a boomer first, obviously, but I identify as a old school built and raised on country values, mm. uh, which I'm just grounded in, in, in that. Uh, so I was raised on a farm. And uh, so those kind of lessons learned Basically, I identify as a, as a black female. I'm also a black gay female out of the country. I mean, out of, from, from there. But basically, my, my core is just um, really resides in being raised on the foundation of being raised in the country. Nice. Those, those values. Yeah. What, um, so you were working in Durham. Are you in, from that area as well? No, from the eastern part of North Carolina, which is one of the poorest parts of the state of North Carolina. It's basically farming, uh, no factories. And if there were factories, they're not there anymore. And people don't usually stay there because there's nothing nothing there. So it's down near Greenville, North Carolina. I have to usually give people a point of reference (laughs) (laughs) because my house sits in the middle of a cornfield. Like, you know, I'm one of those houses when you're out riding in the country, let's go ride in the country. You go, Oh, that's where BJ lives. So that's kind of where I live. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. So you grew (laughs) up like really like growing everything that you ate or. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I was on the end of that, so to speak. Um, But yeah, I worked in a tobacco field, 
put tobacco in the barns and chickens and cows and pigs and all of that. Yeah, my father, uh, my family was one of the few black families that didn't have to work for the white farmer. Uh, my father, my grandfather actually purchased a couple of hundred acres from this white man. Um, and so our family, um, we lived on that farm for a long time. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and now it's kind of sad because the number of black farmers is nowhere where it used to be. Uh, so that, it, I mean, that's a whole different topic, but that's kind of sad that we don't, that we're losing our black farmers. Right. Yeah, that's a big thing. It'll definitely be interesting to see like what this year has had an impact on the black mm-hmm. farmers that remain. Yeah. Know, um, one thing that was really cool that I saw this year was there was a, I think like 19 black families came together and bought like a whole bunch of land here in Georgia. I saw that. I saw that. That is so cool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And what, yeah. what also just to kind of stay with that for just a second is that it really hemp and this new thing with, with, with pot, uh, that's another cash cow, but somehow or another, they're still able to leave out black farmers in that, in that stuff. So it's, it's just amazing how all that, you know, black bodies in jail for selling pot. Now black farmers can't use that as, as a plant, you know, to get start farming again. So all, all of that. So it's just, it's interesting to me how that works out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. Like, huh, yeah. Yeah, what is that about? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, to kind of keep with that, so I think it's, I always like to, kind of hear how people decided to jump into their kind of career. So um, you grew up in the Eastern North Carolina, grew up in the country. So what <laughs> was that transition like? Uh, or actually, better question, how old were you when you decided to join the police force? I think I would join the 23, 24, something like that. Because uh, I actually retired just in my, in my 50s, 53, 54. Um, so I, I came to North Carolina Central University here in Durham uh, and did not graduate. Uh, being from the country and don't nobody ever let you do anything. Once I got away from the house and slammed the doors, I just didn't do what I was. I did everything except go to class just about. And so um, I didn't graduate. And so what I did, I went back home and I told my, my dad, I said, look, if you buy me a car, I'm out of here. I will never put my hands back in your pocket again. And that's what he did. So I, never went back, I never went back down to Eastern North Carolina to live. So I stayed here and I joined the uh, uh, police department. It was public safety then in 1981. Right, public safety in 1981. So um, mm-hmm. you got your car, joined the force. So did you join just to do something or was did you feel like a kind of calling to join the police force? Actually, no to none of that. I uh, had never been around a police officer, really. Uh, the reason I joined because I needed a job. Uh, I, I didn't work. When I came back, when I moved back to Durham, I was actually sleeping on a friend of mine's floor um, until I could get my feet. I was working at McDonald's. I was working part-time at Parks and Recs. I was I mean, I was doing, I mean, I was rolling about three or four part-time jobs and somebody said, you know, you might make a police, good police officer. And so I looked at the, back then it's like $20,000, right? And I was like, you mean I can get this much money doing one job instead of working four or five part-time jobs? So literally the only reason I became a police officer because I needed a check and because I like toilet tissues. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I like going to the bathroom indoors. You know what I'm saying? It's just something right. about that. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. why. Yeah. Wasn't a calling. I needed a job. Mm. So how long um, was it where you were kind of sleeping on friend's floor and just going from job to job before you actually um, applied to be a police officer? Uh, 79. So 70, 79 days? 70, no, you mean how long from what? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Like um, how long was it that you're working all these different jobs? So was it like a couple months? Oh, yeah, like about, about a year, about a year and a half. Year yeah, about, about a year, and then I got a job, permanent job as what they call then physical education aide at an elementary school, and uh, where they instead of they'd have what they call structured recess, and they dumped mm. the kids on me, and so I worked there for about a year, and that's where I, I joined the police department while I was working there, and I was also still working part time jobs too, so I was driving a school bus and stuff like that, so I was still rolling with two or three jobs until I got the police department. Okay, interesting. So, um, and I think you mentioned before, but what was that first um, when you entered? Like, what was that first job? Like, what what's the title that they give you for police officer? Mm-hmm. So, what you, then it was public safety here in Durham okay. back then because they I was taught I, I've been trained as a firefighter and a police officer because they thought it would save money by training us both training an individual how to fight fire and be the popo and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eventually, somebody said, no, nah, that ain't working out too good budgetarily. And so then they said, well, they offered those of us who were hired, what do you want to do? You want to be a firefighter? Do you want to be the popo? And I was like, I'd done a couple of fires. And I was like, nope, do not want to run into a building where the whole floor can give away. I'll take my chances with one bullet. So I decided, Man, so you actually had yeah. a lot of fires before oh yeah. yo okay what was that first time you had to be like put out a fire what was that like oh it, it's actually adrenaline rush pretty because the first time i was what they call on the on the nozzle where you go in first and the people are behind you and you actually go into the to the house and it's on fire it's a rush uh but i, don't, I wouldn't want to do that for a living and now they don't unless there's lives to be saved for the most part based on what i understand they don't really go into buildings like they used to to fight fire uh, but in in back in the day, basically you eat and smoke, uh, just go in. But yeah, it, it's a rush. But nah, I, my hats off to firefighters. I just just can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll, I'll just take my chances with one bullet. Because you can go into a building and the whole building will collapse on you, and everybody's gone. You know, but somebody's shooting at you. You know, their odds are pretty good. You may not get struck. Right. So I decided which one would I. Which bullet is versus thing. building. <laughs> yeah, losing the whole floor. Yeah, exactly. I feel you. So, um, okay, yeah. So, I think I would probably make that same choice as well. Um, especially, you know, with my locks, I don't know if they're like I might like just catch on fire from there. Like, I think one of my worst fears. I just started thinking about Michael Jackson and that uh, Pepsi commercial. His hair oh, catching yeah. on fire. Like, oh no, yes, I can't, yes, yes. Yeah. Sure. All right. So you chose the path of the police officer. Um, before you had joined, uh, what? Were if you remember, like, did you have a certain perspective towards the police? Because you said this was during the eighties that you joined, right, or mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the eighties. So, did you have a yeah. certain uh, perspective on them? I did not. I had no perspective at all. Um, being in the country, we went to school with the, the sheriff's son, um, and that was it. We never were around law enforcement in my in my family we well i take take that back my family uh 
uh, was able to purchase all that land because they also ran, uh, they had a steal. They, they made moonshine. Uh, so, uh. so which, which I found out there's a professor at North Carolina Central University. He and some other colleagues from HBCUs are doing a study on um, black farmers. They're doing a historical and going around and interviewing them. And he said he interviewed my, my parents. And basically that was a way for black farmers to make money was moonshine moonshine and that's how they got money uh my father was the youngest of his siblings he doesn't really remember it because once they got the money they stopped doing that um but getting back to the police the only i would hear the stories of my father's brother who would always be running from the guy you know the people that are trying to get the moonshine you know mm-hmm. so he, he would run up and down the road from them and always get into the woods trying to move the steel and stuff so that's the only thing I had about law enforcement when I was growing up. Man, your family has like a real strong history. That's interesting. Like your family really might be in a history book. Like <laughs> that's a pretty cool story. I think that's so amazing. I think um like there's especially during that times, like really to just be mm-hmm. able to get the money through just selling mm-hmm. moonshine and actually go and purchase land. Like that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, black folks do what they got to do. You know what I'm saying? They do what they got to do. And and because of that, you know, that's why I'm sitting here with you. You know, I, I just don't ever want to forget that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm curious, how long did it take you to become a deputy police chief? Uh, I was promoted a deputy police chief in 2009. Um, I actually started being promoted in 1987. Okay. So what was the path like from that position you had? What was that first promotion? It was a corporal in uniform patrol. And so, and which was pretty, I, I don't know what people consider that fast, but I'd only been on the academy five years, five or six years, and I was promoted, which I think is pretty, pretty quick. And so promoted, you know, corporal in the district, supervisor and a sergeant. And, um, to take the you know, sergeant moved to another district, mm-hmm. uh, promoted to a captain and district commander, and then was a district commander, major, and then deputy police chief. So around the time you got that first promotion, actually a thought just popped in my mind. Um, <laughs> how many, um, yeah, how many women did you work with? It wasn't a lot of women at first when, when we were there. I mean, I, I was probably, it was less than 10 women when I came. So. Gotcha. And how many, like, black people? Uh, probably uh, not half, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely not half. Because it's just, I don't know whether you've heard the term, and some people get a little offended about it, but you have to really work to, to get black folks to be the popo. Uh, white males and you don't have to, you don't basically have to recruit for them. I mean, it's just, that's something they want to do or their parents or family members or law enforcement, but it's hard to recruit to get black folks to be the popo. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a surprise there, but um, it's interesting. I was wondering just like how, um, I think it's interesting, like being a police officer. I don't know too much about it, of course, but around that time, I guess there was a lot of um, like a really, really harsh crackdown on drugs, and they directly affected the black community. Yeah, um, yeah. What yeah. do you? 
do you recall? And if you're open to sharing, like what, how did you feel kind of being an officer during that time? Yeah. I, you know what? I don't really, we knew one of, one of my buddies, he was uh, in, in the drugs, black guy. And he actually called, told the, you know, told the department to be on the lookout. Crack was, was, was going on during my time on the street, crack cocaine. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, drug bust and things like that. But I, I will, uh, Michelle Alexander, the, the, that wrote the book on the Jim, Jim Crow book, the new Jim mm-hmm. Crow. I have, I've started to read that book. Uh, I have yet to fit. I started to read that book maybe two years ago. I haven't finished it because as I'm reading it, I'm going, shit, that I was doing that. You know, I was part of that. The Reagan era, you know, it's always about the war on crime, fighting, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I, as a police officer, were part of that. You know, obviously I didn't, you know, didn't really connect because I'm just doing my job. Because, you know, people are doing drugs. It's illegal to do drugs, blah, blah, blah. But when I started reading her book, it it was emotional to go, shit, I was a part of that. Putting black and brown bodies in jail uh, because of this this war on crime, this, this fighting drugs and all this stuff. Um, I do remember this one guy, we, uh, the drug guys arrested. And as a patrol officer, we have to, you know, we, they, they do what they do and then they need transport because they don't have the cages that are in the car and stuff for safety purposes. And so this young man they had arrested uh, was sitting in my back car and he was arrested for crack cocaine. So I asked him, I said, I said, so what is it? I mean, why do you use crack cocaine? And what? Tell me about it. I mean, what? What? And he said, it's like it's like an orgasm. He said that first hit is just like an orgasm. But then he said, but you chasing that from that point on. And so I knew then I didn't want to use crack because I don't want to be chasing the, the feeling of an orgasm. If I get an orgasm the first time, I want an orgasm every time. But he was just like, it's just you're chasing that first hit. And, um, I mean, you know, it was it was detrimental. It's just detrimental. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, did you, how did your family feel about you being an officer during that time? Um, they were a little uncomfortable. They didn't even tell my grandmother who was alive at the time. They didn't even tell her until after I had graduated from the academy because they didn't want her to know or worry. Um, didn't find out till kind of after I retired. My mother also told me that she was uh, she was concerned but wouldn't really let on uh, about me. And she was basically so I was really glad when you started getting promotions because that meant you were kind of off the street. Um, mm. so, but for the most part, everybody was, was supportive, didn't have any supportive, but yeah. concerned, supportive, but concerned. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So, um, I want to kind of fast forward a bit to, um, to you being promoted to the deputy police chief. And I'm just curious <laughs> to start off. Um, well, yeah, to start off, how did that feel? Well, it was actually really humbling. I, uh, we had just got a new chief about a year or so prior, and um, I was a little surprised that, uh, like I said, I don't don't have a college degree. Uh, my dad, again, going back to being raised in the country, uh, he was all about uh, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, and let your work speak for itself. And that's the mantra I live by, and it worked. Um, that I, I did the work. 
Uh, I did what I was supposed to, and, and it paid off for me. Uh, so I was, you know, surprised and, and very humbled uh, to be promoted. I was the first black female in the agency to get that rank. Uh, so that was also pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm. First black female to get that rank. Okay. So, all right, this actually leads me to another question I wanted to ask <laughs> you. So um, when, so I have this group that I created called Working While Black. It's mm-hmm. an extension of this show uh, where, you know, the show is just you and I were talking and the Working While Black group is a chance for us all to kind of come together and real kind of engage as a group just to share mm-hmm. some experiences we have um, mm-hmm. in the workplace. So around the time getting that promotion um, and being the first Black female to get that promotion, do you recall any kind of resistance from kind of the coworkers? Like you mentioned that you were surprised. Like how, how did other people react? Well, I mean, not just for that. I think for my entire career, uh, especially as I began to climb up the ladder, uh, I, I probably experienced a lot of things because being in a predominantly male <laughs> male profession, you know, and law enforcement, uh, they called me a bitch, you know, and um, and all that was again going back to my to my upbringing was I'm here to get the work done and you need to get your job done because I'm going to do my job. And so, and then I also, uh, I, I don't exactly take the, I kind of take the candy off of it sometimes. And I'm, I'm not always sugar cooked. I, I, I'll hit you between the eyes. Um, people, some guys were pretty clear that they didn't want to work for a woman. Um, and, that was okay with me. I mean, I, I kind of went by the, this is my philosophy. And I, and I went through that my entire career. I really don't care if you don't like me. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Cause I don't roll over and look at you in the morning when I walk out the house, you know, I, I just need you to respect who I am and I need you to do the job. I even had a, a white male come down to my, transfer to my district as a district commander. And he actually told me that some guys were telling him, you don't want to go work for BJ. Mm. You know, you don't, you just, you just, and so, but then after he'd been there for a couple of months, he came, he said, it's okay. He said, only thing is you want, you want people to do their jobs. That's it. I mean, I just need you to do your job. I'm not here to do anything. I'm going to do mine. You do yours and everybody going to be cool. You know, so, and I also had to learn to, I had to kind of round out my edges because I can, I can cut you off at the knees, and not even care. You know what I'm saying? And and I realized I had to take classes and stuff, and actually, had, and I also had to get some counseling on that too, because you know I come at you and just you know get out the way, you know, do what you got to do, and wouldn't be really nice about it. So I had to, you know, that was that was part of my leadership growth was figuring out how to communicate. I mean, I took classes on critical conversations because you don't really want to bust up somebody's chops. Um, Simply because they're not living up to your expectation, they need to live up to their expectation, and I need to be okay with that. And so that mm. that was growth that I had to come. I had to come to that realization as a manager. That's interesting. So that's actually an interesting um, mindset. I don't think I've heard about before. I think oftentimes, you know, managers set the expectations and they're like, no, you have to meet this. But you're kind of saying you learn that yes, you do have expectations, but what's more important is that person's expectations. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, because you, you and I probably work at 120, right? I mean, we're like 120 every day, all day long. But yet you might have somebody that you know that, that 80 is all I'm going to get. 
you know, and as long as you, you meeting the basic stuff that I need you to do, if 80 is all I'm going to get, I got to be satisfied with 80 because I'm never going to get 120 out of you because that's just how BJ rolls. So I cannot hold you up to the same standard as, as how I roll. I got to, as long as you're doing your work and you give me, give me all the 80. That's all I asked you to do. Give me that 80 and we're going to be good to go. And I had to learn that. And I had to learn that. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for sharing. That's a, that's a pro tip. And also I really like um, you kind of sharing that just throughout your career, like as you continue to kind of grow in your career, you started getting more kind of hate resistance. I think that's a, something that people experience across the board like oftentimes people who are cool with you are cool with you because like you're not over them but as soon as you start to get in more leverage or authority just more attention praise just ranked higher they start to envy you more and i think some of the whatever they felt inside whether they're conscious or subconscious just starts to come out i think it's so interesting Mm -hmm. um in all phases of life but um very cool yeah Hmm. yeah Yeah. so i say oh one other question, history, um, and I just actually just thought of this, but when NWA came out with that song, of course, this is like a whole different coast. I don't even know how it affected over here, but NWA came yeah. out with Fuck the Police. Like, did that song have an impact on you guys? It didn't bother me. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't answer that because I, I mean, I was probably saying do it sometime, but yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I might have cranked it up in my car a couple of times, but yeah, no, it didn't bother, it didn't bother me because they don't know me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. You know, stuff like that is not personal for me. I mm-hmm. just don't roll like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, niggas with an attitude, they ain't got no problem with that. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to invite you all to join me in the Boss Locks Village. It's a way for you to directly support me and the show as we continue to reach new growth. And When I say support the show, I really mean it. Like when you join for as little as $2 a month, you're helping us with initiatives like an internship program we're putting together and uh, creating more community events for listeners of the podcast. So if you're not driving, go ahead and take a second to click the link in the description and sign up for as little as $2 a month to be a part of the Boss Lots Village. Let's grow together. What year did you retire? Because you became a police chief and uh, deputy police chief in 09. Um, mm-hmm. When did you retire from the police force? 2010. I re- retired in 2010. Actually, I, had a, I came out under a scandal, um, but I was able to, to retire. I mean, I had put the years in, but uh, I had a little blip at the end of my career. Uh, I signed off some overtime and employee got $60,000 worth of overtime pay in, in about six months. And I was just signing stuff, really wasn't paying attention. And so, um, and it's okay. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's the universe has a way of, my wife was like, had told me a year or so, it was like, you should go ahead and retire. Because I had enough, I had enough time. But also I was was trying to be mindful of the chief who just promoted me. I at least wanted to give him a little time. I didn't want to like promote me and then skedaddle. And mm-hmm. but uh, the universe has a way of going. Well, it's time for you to go. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah. before you got that promotion, you were actually considering retiring. Well, I I really wasn't. Uh, my wife wanted me to because I I loved it. I, I really was. I I, I loved the work. Um, well, I didn't love the politics, but I, I loved the making and, and and being a part of Durham community and working with those communities that um, that needed police. 
you know, and getting to know folks and how they needed service and stuff. So that's the part that that I love. But yeah, no, I wouldn't think that I probably would have stayed there another couple of years, possibly. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. Hmm. All right. So I guess that was just a good timing. You kind of were like, you know what? I'm going to just head out while this is all going on. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have a choice. I had to go. I mean, Got you know, it. I mean, basically, like yeah. Well, it wasn't forced, but it was like, I'm just kind of like a lame duck at that point. You know, there were no criminal charges. Just I made a big mistake in signing off on some stuff, not paying attention. And like I said, the universe, uh, people asked me about it. And I consider that probably one of the most divine moments of my life. Mm. Um, so the universe has a way of, of doing what it needs to do to teach you or keep you moving in a direction that it needs you to move in. So it, it, it served its purpose in my own personal growth um, as to w- what is it I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, it was hard. Uh, it took me three, almost three years before I could even talk. <laughs> I, I, I call it an overtime sc- scandal. And I tell mm-hmm. people it, it took a couple of years before I could even hear a football football announcer go, we can't ready to go into overtime without having to break it oh, down and cry. I was like, no, I can't hear the word overtime. Uh, but, you know, the lessons happen for a reason. That's right. And now you're out here really helping the community in a whole different way. Yeah. Um, through UN50. So yeah. you've had this company for five years. Is that right? Yeah, started in 2015. Yeah, officially. 2015. So um, before we kind of jump into why you, well, it might turn into that, but um, can you tell us <laughs> a little bit more about what UN50 is? Well, UN50 in a nutshell is uh, teaching individuals how to safely interact with law enforcement and survive that interaction uh, while also um, understanding their rights and also understanding law enforcement's perspective and um, hopefully mutual respect between the two basically in a nutshell yeah yeah and so now i know this year you launched the podcast and you've done a lot of different work with directly with individuals communities and all sorts of things but um to go back five years 2015 2015 mm-hmm. right yeah yes um, 2015. What, what led you to start this well it was actually a friend of mine who was a DEA agent, well, he's retiring this year. Uh, he said, BJ, there's more for you to do. And so I prayed on that and just kept thinking about it. And, and, and then Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, those types of things. And then during, right after Trayvon Martin's um, uh, trial, they were doing, as they always do, the media goes into the black community, you know, what do you think, and all this kind of stuff. So while I'm looking at it, this black guy goes, they are always in here harassing us even though that wasn't a police shooting that's how it kind of came off right uh and when he said that i was like oh that's it 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 dawned on me well as a police executive i was like well if they're harassing you and causing you issues you need to tell somebody you know because i'm a police executive i'm asleep at three o'clock in the morning and if i got a police outside they're being an ass the only way i'm gonna know that if you tell me and then I'm going to deal with that. So it just dawned on me because black people, black folks, they don't complain on the popo because they don't think anything will happen. And that's definitely not true. That's, that's not true. Um, we we want to know we've got officers out there that are not being professional. And so basically it came out of that, wanting to teach people and change that paradigm shift, especially in the black community, file complaints on the popo. 
things will happen. I mean, BJ having an attitude with Walter when I stopped him and you complain on me, that doesn't mean I'm going to get fired. It just means you just check me. Because like I said in the beginning, I like going to the bathroom indoors. So it's just going to make the police officer know that his community are going to expect professionalism from them and also knowing your rights, minimum rights. So, and, 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 so, and now with everything that's going on, Walter, it's also about surviving. I, I really don't give a shit <laughs> if people don't like the popo. I really don't care if you all, you can like them, you can hate them. You ain't got to buy them no donuts. You ain't got to do nothing. I don't care. This is all about getting home. I've never changed that. I, I don't care if you don't like them. I just, this is about you getting home and filing a complaint later. That's it. Simple. And that's, that's, that's the main reason for why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's um, part of why I was really excited to have you on. Um, because I think our first introduction, you were kind of sharing like kind of what your show is about and what you do, just helping people with interactions with the police. But then when we spoke a little bit more, I really, I really like not only heard, but felt the passion within you. I remember you mentioning that it was, you feel as though it's kind of like a calling right now, or you feel called to do this work to just um, help people survive not necessarily take a side, not play politics, none of this stuff. Like, yo, these are the options you have. If you want to survive this, can't say it's going to come out in your favor, but you will make it home. And I really kind of appreciated that and definitely wanted to have you on because I think um, that's, it's, you know, I think we all grow up, um, I definitely still remember different conversations with my mom. Like I remember when I was little, actually, there was a shirt that was going around. Like if you see a cop, Warner Brother, it had the like WB symbol and everything. And so, like we we grew up uh-huh. hearing exactly what type of things can happen. And it's like you know we hear like you go, you get pulled over, hands on the wheels, have everything ready to go. Like to this day, every time I get into the car, I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, where's everything? All right, cool, we're good. So when you started it that first year in the middle of everything, how did people react to you? Like what was people's first impression when you were like, oh yeah, this is what I'm doing? Um, I think because I guess I'm lucky that I started in Durham because my reputation kind of preceded me as far as working with the community. Uh, You know, I think um, people realize that as you said, that's my passion. I'm, I'm here to get you to get home safely. So they were like, okay. And so let's, a couple of doors open for me here in Durham. I actually have a contract with the Durham City Police Department as part of their community outreach program. So I go out and do uh, these presentations uh, as part of their stuff. So basically people were, were supportive because they knew that, oh, BJ is going to come correct. And, and that's the other thing too. I'm really candid. It's a very candid and raw conversation. We talk about, I tell people, you can ask me anything. You can say anything about the popo. Sometimes law, law enforcement is in the room because it's also, I think it's important for them to understand what the community is thinking about them or asking the kind of questions. Uh, so it's a very candid, raw conversation. And um, people, some, I've had some people say, you know, I just needed to talk. I just needed to get that out. And then uh, quite a few say, well, you know what? I never thought of that like that because they don't think of it from hearing it from a police officer perspective. Um, not, and I also tell them, well, I'm not here to change your mind. Again, I'm not here to change your mind, but just kind of think about this for a moment. It's why an officer might do X, Y, Z. You ain't got to like it, but here's a perspective for you. And they're like, oh, okay. So, yeah. 
I like that. I think it's very good. Uh, perspectives is a strong thing. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people, we surround ourselves with people who have the same perspective. So yeah. any chance you have to hear other people's perspective in a safe environment, yes. I always applaud that. I think that's yeah. very important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, just and to make it safe. Make mm-hmm. it just safe so people can just, I mean, they, some people are like, I just don't, you know, can't, don't like them and they do this and they do that. And then, you know, the other thing, I and I don't push back too hard, but when they keep saying they, you know, it's like, no, that was just one guy with his knee on the neck of the Mr. Floyd. You know, that wasn't the entire police industry. You know? So you're saying they, and when you saw also talking about colleagues of mine that would not do stuff like that. So, you know, holding individual officers respond, responsible for in the agencies, you know, who hired them is, but, you know, to, you guys feel locally what you got to do with that. Let's figure that out. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting because I think that it's, definitely feels like a they like a everyone yeah and i think part of that is because we don't um kind of what you were saying before like i have no idea how to report harassment or file a complaint so we mm-hmm. see something happen or experience something happen and we're like you yeah. know what that's just how it happens like these people are not for us at all so but i think what was right. interesting what you were saying and it makes it sound so simple, like, you know, like you were like, hey, if something's going wrong, I need to know, but you won't necessarily know, because obviously if the person's harassing someone, they're not going to, well, they might go brag about it, but they're not going to go brag about telling everyone, yeah, I just harassed them. So how would somebody right. go and report harassment or file a complaint? Yeah, they need to look at, um, contact their police department. Uh, a lot of some agencies have stuff on their website that you can do online, but usually um, you can actually like, if I get pulled over and uh, I pull you over and you're like, you know, I was rude to you. Right. So after I go ahead and give you the ticket and they should, you should know my name and stuff like that. You can dial 911 and say, look, I'm on East main street. I just got stopped by an officer. I think her name was officer council. Uh, could I see a supervisor? I need to talk to a supervisor. You can make a complaint immediately. You could call 911 on the police officer? Yep, and ask to speak to his or her supervisor. They may not be available. If they're not, they'll, they'll give you the information on, on when or the next day to do the information. But you can ask. And and some agencies are even got, have it on their mission or how to file complaints. So the officer should tell you the name of his or her supervisor uh, and give you the telephone number. I mean, and, and, and that's, another, that's another thing, too. People need to understand as community members, you need that going to your police department, find out how, how to do that. And if it's not easy to do, then you need to probably sit down with your police department and say, look, we want to make filing complaints simpler for our community. How do we do that? How do we do that? Man, I don't know if you can see that well, but like my eyes are just like, whoa. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's power. When a community, I mean, man, I know it sounds kind of weird, but you know, you pay my check. So you can go in and say, look, police department, how, how do we file complaints? How can you make it simple and easy for, for us to do that? How can we educate? I remember we had a police chief that came in and I, this was, you know, I was still trailing up the, up the line and he came in and he was like telling the whole community how to file police complaints. And I was like, what, what is he doing? And, but then I learned, put, put it out there. And what, and unfortunately what happened, nobody files complaints, but 
the community can't could not say to him, you're not making it easy for us to complain on police officers when in fact he was. He was like, here, here's, here's how to complain. Here's, I mean, he was just like, anytime you want to complain, you can do this, you can do that, make it available. People didn't really, com- the complaints didn't go up, but at least the community didn't have, wasn't able to come back on the agency and go, we don't know how to file complaints. If you got a problem, we're saying file a complaint, making it easy for you. So yeah, you 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 can uh, citizens have a lot of power. You just gotta you just gotta go in and chat. And that's something else I'm trying to figure out how to help two communities to go in and you know what to ask, how to ask. You know what are the things that you should be asking your law enforcement agency to make it the way that you want it to be. Hmm. Wow, an idea how we could work together on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yes. powerful. Wow. Yeah, because I guess you're right. I guess. Um, Technically, like like politicians, police officers are a public servants, so yes. really they're here to serve us, not yeah, just right. um, not just the white people, everyone. <laughs> that's interesting. Yes. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're the person um, leading UN Five O because you're well, not like you. just hiding information or just choosing not to share information. You're like, yeah, file a complaint. Like that's okay. Interesting. So. Um, you went five oh five years. Um, you started it with your nephew, is that right? No, I just started I started a podcast. No, I started a podcast, podcast and invited Yeah, I, I invited him and another young lady that I met at a, at a community event. Um and and I keep saying as I've said to you many times on the emails, I'm a boomer. Um the young lady Harmony, she is a millennial, and then my nephew is a Gen Gen Z. Yeah, so and I because we and then we're looking at it from different perspectives, and that's what I wanted to make sure because I mean, I'm looking at it from black female police officer boomer, and they're looking at it through the eyes of a millennial, and you know, and she actually has protested, uh, uh, in front of the Durham Police Department and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't, I don't work in a vacuum. You know, uh, I, I get it. I, I want, if people want to protest, I'm all about it. But the thing, I guess, at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to come in and sit down and be at the table with them. You're going to have to sit down at the table. Protest oh, all yeah. day long. Yeah, but yeah, some, at some point, you got to come in. You got to come in. Right. And I think that um, speaks to, I know that during the summer, a lot of people were like, what can we do? Because not everyone can go out and protest. Like some people right. just aren't physically able to do that or mm-hmm. just mentally. Like that's that's a lot to ask them to go out and protest. So yeah. I think there is a role yeah. for everyone. Some people go out on the street. Some people sit at the table and other people mm-hmm. do other things. There's a lot of different roles. Yep. Um, and yeah, your, yeah. your show yeah. is really good. I know I, I mentioned it before we got on, but I, I really, really like your show. Um, one, just the fact that you have so many different Thank perspectives you. as the host. So it's like you could always, each of you guys would check each other. I know that first episode, you guys spoke <laughs> about slave patrols as um kind of, and well, before I keep going on, well, yeah. I'll come back to that in a second, but I just really liked it <laughs> hearing all the whole dynamic. Um, The young lady, Harmony, who um she was sharing that her, I think either her father or grandfather started a, or maybe great grandma, someone mm-hmm. in her line started this huge protest that ended up leading and things getting burned yes. down. It's just so interesting how kind of history can easily repeat yes. itself. But um, yeah, your mm-hmm. show is really cool. I definitely recommend yeah. everyone checking it out. But um, can you share a little Thank bit you. about what slave patrols are? Because I think a lot of people might be the first time hearing about that. Or I know myself, I don't know that much about um, slave patrols. So mm-hmm. could you share a little bit about that? 
Yeah, and I had to kind of go a little bit further than read it myself, but basically uh, slave patrols were, as they were, keeping slaves from running away from their masters. And so they created people to go out and bring them back home. And eventually, it, it, that's basically where kind of law enforcement gets its roots from. Um, KKK is also part of that. And then people in law enforcement. It, it, law enforcement has its roots in slave patrols, basically. Uh, I mean, it's evolved, obviously, but it, it basically has, it's part of its history. And so we wanted to make sure, you know, that people understand that's, that's the history and where, where it is. But, but yeah, just groups of people, uh, white folks, people, people, folks that even didn't even own slaves basically were hired to go chase down slaves and bring them back to their, to their rightful owners, so to speak. And then it just kept going and then evolving into enforcement and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I don't, I don't know. I had to do the reading myself from, uh, <laughs> Dr. Johnson from North Carolina Center, who's an awesome history guy. Um, and we're thinking about doing some history periodically just so we, we remember where we come from. What's up, everyone? I want to take a few moments to invite you all to Buy Black Friday. It's the first of many live events we're putting together to encourage everyone to buy black. Basically, the last Friday of every month, we're hosting a live show highlighting black-owned businesses and digging deeper into what it means to buy black. Our first event is Friday, January 29th, and we're going to keep it going every month. Visit the episode show notes to learn more and stay tuned as we introduce this new movement to consistently buy black. Well, um, let's see. All right. So I want to ask about your hair journey. Uh, right now you have your hair shaved and everything. Um, did you, when you were in the police force, how did you have your hair? Like, how would you wear your hair? Short. 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 I, I actually had, yeah, in high school, um, I had what I, I think I might've mentioned to you when we first, I had an Angela Davis Afro. It was huge. Um, and when I went to school, I was like, ah, I can't do that. Well, that's just a lot of hair. And ever since then, it's been relatively short. Uh, and I, I don't know when I really started just zipping it all off, um, because I'm lazy, uh, uh, about standing in the mirror. If I'm in the mirror messing with my hair more than five minutes, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's five minutes. I could have been doing something yeah. else. <laughs> Uh, I've always liked locks, though. I keep uh, saying I want, but I just, for some reason, the growing of the hair, taking it that long, because I love uh, small locks and stuff. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm thinking about whether I'm going to. I love black women who have gray hair, and they just let it go gray. Oh, I think that's so pretty. And then um, I think black women are, some women are, I think it's blonde or looks a little... It's not white, but anyway, I'm thinking about dyeing my hair that way because I think it's so. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that will. I keep saying I'm going to do that, but I love it. I just love the way women, white women, do that, do their hair, you know, stuff like that. And then, you know, I'm also not exactly the most feminine woman in the world. I mean, I, I mean, I get served all the time, and I get that, you know, because that's how I that's how I move. I move through spaces of butch lesbian, um, but. And then the hair comes into, well, I just don't feel like really working with all of that. It's just easier for me just to keep it closed, keep it tight, 
and um, it works for me. Uh, but I know I love seeing locks. I know it's like, ah, if I could just have the patience to just let it, if somebody could just plant me somewhere and let the hair grow and not, not really have to just, if it would just grow and, <laughs> you know, if I could say, could you just do um, Lock extensions, baby. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I just do that. But I just, the whole thing, because it just seems like a lot on my head to <laughs> just having to manage it for me. I'm just, mm-hmm. too, I'm just too lazy. I'm lazy. And you know, it's funny. Um, I remember when I first started locks, I was like, okay, yeah, I don't have to do it to my hair. Just let it grow. Of course, it ended up taking a lot of maintenance, but me, but now, you know, yeah. So you've always kept your hair pretty short then. Pretty short. Yeah. As soon as I left, as soon as I left the country. Yeah. I got rid of it. Got rid of that afro. Sure. Did, um, was, that ever any type of problem when you were in the police force? No, uh-uh. as far as my hair or mm. what? Mm-mm. Yeah, hair up, like people couldn't react or anything like that. Mm-mm. No. Right. Yeah. Well, there's no uh, right or wrong answer to that. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, they, you know, they always want meat and stuff, but no, 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 no issues and things like that. No, mm-hmm. it's always the whole thing. Keep it off your collar, you know. Kind of yeah, well, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know whether they still do that now or not, but yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, one thing I think I'd be doing a disservice to the audience if I didn't mention it, and I think it's actually really cool. Like, I'm actually really excited to ask you about this, but the concept of defunding the police and something that you did on your show, which I definitely recommend people listen to, <laughs> is you actually spoke with some people that you worked with before. Mm-hmm. About and I think it was it was more so like an exercise from like a budget standpoint on yes. what would happen if you kind of defunded the Durham police. Yeah. So, um, could you kind of share, um, kind of like share a little bit more about that exercise that you did? Like, it's, I think it's really interesting because it wasn't really necessarily a conversation about right or wrong you were kind of talking about okay yeah this is where kind of money spent and this is how everything's affected so could you kind of share a little bit about um that exercise you did yeah thanks for asking yeah so we uh first of all i i understand defunding police i i know what people mean by they're basically saying reallocate but they're using defunding police but it's kind of been taken over well, you're going to take money from the police department but they're not going to be safe uh, and so that is not the issue. Uh, what I want folks to understand that defunding law enforcement does not mean you're not going to be safe. What that means, people have to remember this, this is a professional industry. Uh, what, and I'll get to the exercise in a minute, but basically there's a article and I didn't, but think somewhere in Austin, Texas, I believe there's a sign. I think it was Austin, Texas. They put it on CNN. They put up a sign that entered Austin, Texas at your own risk basically talking about defunding police and because of that, this conversation. And that's not true. That that's People need to understand when they say defund police, uh, it does not mean that uh, you're not going to have officers answering calls. You're not going to have officers investigating cases. You're not going to have officers uh, not taking care of drug dealers on a, on a, on a side of the corner. What, what, the, what that means is that you're going to be that's all you're going to get if, if, you're, if the community decides to do this. So what we did with Durham Police Department was like, look, Durham Police Department has $60 million in their budget. 
Um, and we decided to do 10% of that, $6 million, which equated to them reducing their police department by 70 or 80. And because law enforcement, we're not going to not have someone answering your calls. That, 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 that's gonna, they're going to always be there. So what's going to happen basically is you, they're going to say, well, you know what? We're not going to have any more police athletic leagues. We're not going to have any more community meetings. We're not going to have community uh, crime prevention stuff. We're not going to have those things that police departments do to help improve community relations because we can't afford to do that if you take $6 million or the, the soft services, for lack of better words, the things that the warm and fuzzies that police departments do that the community, for the most part, want them to do. But if the, if the community, city council, the members say, look, we want you to defund, this is how much money you're going to take, the agency and the, the executives are going to go, okay, well, we're definitely not going to stop doing abating crime. We're definitely going to investigate crimes, and we're definitely going to do that. So basically you're saying to us, that's all we're going to be able to do based on how much money you take from us. We're going to get rid of all the soft stuff. Um, and so that's 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 it literally. So basically while defunding police is a national narrative and conversation, you actually need to look locally. So you, first of all, it takes a little bit of work, citizens. <laughs> you got to go to budget meetings. You got to figure out what it, what is it that your police department is currently doing, looking at all the stuff that they have. So I was looking at uh, Stone Mountain, right? Uh, they have, I believe, I couldn't really tell, but anyway, they've got less than 20 police officers. So you can about imagine that their budget is not $60 million. So if you go in there and tell that chief you want them to defund, it's going to be really interesting to figure out what is it they're currently doing that they got less than 20 officers that you don't want them to do anymore because they probably don't have a lot of wiggle room. Uh, so you've got to figure out what is it that they do extra beyond enforcement. Because I'll give you an example. Here in Durham, uh, Chief, uh, chief Davis, who was from Atlanta Police Department, is our chief here. And she's, we're having some gang problems. We're having retaliatory violence, you know, like Walter belongs to a gang, VJ belongs to a gang. I shot Walter, and now somebody's coming after me, but ain't nobody telling on it. You know, that's just, it's just retaliatory. So it's just constantly going on. So what she's, so, so based on what I heard her do a presentation, she's taking some of her community service officers or crime prevention officers, and they're going out knocking on some doors in the community, kind of figure out to get some help or let folks know what's going on. If you were to say, tell her to defund, she's going to get rid of that part. So you're not going to have folks coming out doing it extra because you can't have your patrol officers do that because they got to answer calls. So you don't have a, so if you defund, that's going to take that depart, that division away, the community service officers away who are out there doing that warm and fuzzy stuff that you want them to do. So that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. So nothing's going to happen to fighting crime. You just have to look at your individual local agency and you got to go in and look at the budget. You know, what is it that they're doing that you want them to do? want them to continue to do or don't want them to do anymore because you want some money to go somewhere else. And then the other piece that we talked about, and then if something were to happen because of that defunding, you as a community and city council would have to just own it if something happens. Because it takes a long time to recoup uh, bodies when you start getting rid of them. It's not, it doesn't, because everybody's trying to hire the same body. So that's hmm. basically it. 
Gotcha. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's such a, I think it's really interesting from each kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. Without my own preferences, but I think more so, I just want improvements in certain things. I think they're interesting. Like I believe in New York that they, I don't know if they've already made this happen, but I know there was talks about um, kind of bringing social workers to be kind of first responders in some cases. Cause I mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. sometimes it's almost inappropriate just from all sides for a police officer to show up to certain types of calls where a social worker might be able to help better, or at least sh- right. or at least join at bare minimum. Cause there's certain things that like, why would a police mm-hmm. officer have to respond to someone who's experiencing mental health? Like they might not be properly equipped to handle that where a social worker might be better equipped to handle that. So I think that um, I'm really mm-hmm. interested in seeing the different ways that, you know, the community mm-hmm. can be served. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It has to do with training, though. I mean, you also have to figure out, like, yeah, you want a social worker or a mental health person to go, like the recent shooting. I apologize when I remember where the young man was out with his mother and got shot by the police officer. You, you're not going to send a mental health worker into it with a mental person in a mental health crisis with a gun. You're going to send a police officer in. Okay. So there, unless you start training your mental health persons how to, you know, take a gun from a person who is, you know, or, or a weapon. That so we got to figure out how to do that. So the, the there's mm-hmm. training that the departments and communities can figure out. Well, is there something else we can do if somebody with a knife and then the officer has a gun to de-escalate? There's training out there that you know you take cover, slow it down as much as you can, but you're still going to probably need an officer to respond with a weapon because you're not your mental health person isn't going to be trained to take care of that. You know, so we just got to figure out what that balance is. And then, and then just so, and I don't, I just want to put this out there too for you folks. There are 18,000 uh, police departments, state and local police departments across this country. Uh, this is based on the 21st century police task force that Obama did in 2015. Of those 18,000, 13,000 of them have less than 25 people on their law enforcement agency. The, mm-hmm. the, the minority are large agencies. Okay, everybody always thinks about New York and Atlanta, but the bulk of the police departments in this country have less than 25 police officers on it. So you got to think about that budget. You know, it's not going to be an Atlanta budget. It's not even going to be a Durham budget. Uh, it's going to probably be looking more like a Stone Martin budget, so mountain budget. So that's, people have to kind of understand defunding is a national conversation, but the work has to be done locally. You got to go in, figure out what's going on. What do you want your agencies to do or don't do? How do you get them more money? How do you get them training? And then the last thing I'll say about training is most trainings across this country for basic law enforcement training hasn't changed in 20 some plus years. So you got to start, you got to start looking at how are your officers being trained and start paying attention to that. And communities and, and folks can do that. Hasn't changed in 20 something years. That's crazy. So yeah. Okay. There may be the same approach to training that existed in like the 90s, 80s and 90s that's still kind of being yes. taught the same way. Yes. I just read an article in the U.S. Uh, was written in June by his police officer. His father was a police officer and his wife, and both of them was a black son, father and son. 22 years after his father, he, he can't tell the difference between the training that his father had that he had 22 years later. That's a problem. And so... 
And you also need to see what kind of training they're having, how many hours of the training that they're doing. I mean, we got to change. And these are the voices of the community. Uh, uh, North Carolina just had a task force to look at some of this stuff. But a lot of work has to be done, uh, again, going into the space, looking at stuff like that, because people don't think about that. So that's training that hasn't changed in 22 years. <laughs> that, that's a problem. Or you have de-escalation training and it's only two hours or 480 hours. So you're going to train me in 480 hours, but you only give me two hours of de-escalation training and I never get it again. Mm. So people got to get involved. Unless you know what to ask for, what to look for, you're not going to know. You, you got you got to know. You got to know to automate change. If you don't know, you can't change it. I feel that. Man, thank you for sharing all of that. And um, I think that, to be honest, we, we could keep talking about this forever. Because I've like, I just like so many other questions. But I know we've given uh, the people a lot, and we probably just have to bring you back for round two, three, and four. Um, but thank before you. we go, I have two questions for you. Um, one, how can people find you and learn more about what you do? Uh, UN five O uh, is a website, and I'm on Twitter. Uh, at UN5O and taking some lessons from Walter. We are just getting out there on Spotify and Apple uh, and YouTube channel and do that as well. Uh, Yeah. So yeah. And then UN5O at gmail.com as well too. Um, So yeah, that's, that's, that's where we are. So thank you very much. Nice. Thanks for for the opportunity. Of course. Yeah. And um, yeah, we'll have all the links and everything in the description. Um, and the last question is, is there anything else you want to touch on and share before we go? No, I think, yeah. I, the one thing I think, I, I think with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and the protests, I totally support all of that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I don't, I, I was black before I was a police officer. Uh, I think um, what I would ask, which was very painful for me personally, uh, I, I I love my job. I love being a police. I still think it's noble. But what's painful is that when I go into some of these spaces, and I'm sure some other black folks have experienced that, that I'm not looked at as an ally. I'm looked at as an enemy simply because, again, I like living indoors. It was a jo- it's a job. And I've seen some things. I understand, you know, what's going on in these communities. And a lot of black officers support what's going on and we're here to help more officers are here to help than hurt especially black officers so when we walk into these spaces instead of looking down your nose at me simply because i'm in a uniform it's painful to us to in uniform um black officers are part of this community we're black first and um we want to help we, we can be an ally we can ask the question we, we want to help you like i want to help you figure out how to go into your police department and ask specific questions. I want to tell you where to go to get changes based on state laws and stuff like that. I'm not an enemy. I'm an ally because I'm trying to save black lives. I'm trying to save black lives. Mm. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think, um, I think you're right. We, uh, it's, it's, I think, when seeing a black police officer, we always kind of just question, like, what what are you doing? But um, kind of looking from the ally perspective, that's interesting. What would be the best way to try to reach out and form that kind of partnership, like ask for help? Is it Does it kind of go back to kind of filing complaints and things like that? Or like how, how do we interact with police, uh, black police officers? 
mean, I mean, you got organizations, especially in your leadership role, and 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 just there are human beings. You're going to see them in spaces. Just just talk to them. Go to these community meetings. Be a part of the agency, and you'll get to you'll you'll get to identify those individuals who are real. I'm not that they're not committed, but the ones that can get through, get in there and, and they want to help and stuff like that. And, and retired officers, retired police officers in your community. You know, talk to them. I mean, I'm sure they're sitting there going, "Yeah, I want to do something." Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, I'll be real honest. Law enforcement has to do the heavy lifting to 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 show them, you know, law enforcement. It's on them to make sure that the communities understand we're here and want to work with you. The heavy lifting it rests squarely at the doorstep of law enforcement. Well, community, you know, if they're trying, you know, give them a chance. And and there are black folks and black officers in leadership roles. You know, go in and talk to them and figure out, you know, what can they do? How can we help? And and just you get you, you got to sit down at the table. You, you got to be at the table. You got to be at the table. I just want money in the bank. All right, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Boss Locks podcast. If you like today's episode, make sure you're subscribed and following us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to check out the links in, in our description to learn more about our guests, how you can support our show, you can leave us a voice message, and become a member of the Working Wall Black Facebook group. Thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you Tuesday for our next episode. I don't want no problem, family know yeah, they know I got them, just one lazy in my wallet, I just want money in the bank.